I've been trying to think of a name to call you, my listeners, to this podcast. I think it's weird I, to say, hey, Wanderers. It's also kind of odd to say, hey, you. But anyway, welcome to another edition of Wander. Um, on this episode, we're talking to Gay Gordon Byrne. She's the executive director of the Repair Association and a part of the Right to Repair movement. I find this movement incredibly interesting and I think fairly important. So what they're trying to do is to be a singular place to be fighting for legislation that allows people to fight for the ability to fix their stuff more than anything. It kind of seems like it was something that was slowly taken away from us, from the big uh, tech companies. And we just didn't really notice it because we really liked the convenience of everything that we were purchasing. And now people are wanting to be able to fix their phones, their smart speakers, their even their cars and farm equipment, and they just can't. Well, uh, repair.org is the place for all of those places to look for that ability, and they're fighting for legislation to make it easier for people to fix their stuff. Anyway, here's my conversation with Gay. I think she was fantastic to talk to. I liked her. She was straightforward, uh, funny, and here she is. On Wander with Andrew Wilcox. Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of Wander with Andrew Wilcox. On the show with me today is Gay Gordon Byrne, and we're going to be talking a little bit about the right to repair movement. So, hi, Gay, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing real well. How about you? Oh, I, I, I can't complain. We finally hit positive temperatures up where I'm at, so that's been a nice little uh, experience for us. How's the weather been down, down for you guys down there in, in New York? Well, um, I'm in the mountains of New York State, which, believe, believe it or not, exist, and um, it's kind of been a cold, long winter. Yeah. So we are also looking forward to some above, uh, above freezing temperatures. Yeah, we had uh, the coldest February in 50 years up here. So uh, we are very happy to see some positive temperatures. Now, um, what you are is the executive director of the Repair Association. So if you could tell everyone just a little bit about yourself, that would be fantastic. Well, uh, about me, I just over-volunteered. I didn't plan to do this for a living. But <laughs> um, The association itself is sort of an umbrella group. We put ourselves together um, when we started to realize there was more than just one type of group that had an interest in making sure that repair remained available. Uh, so the initial founders were people that were in the large computer repair business and the cell phone repair business and the medical equipment repair business. Um, and from that, we've, uh, we've got 300 or so different organizations and individuals that are in various aspects. Let's call it the entire secondary market. Everything that happens from the time that you finish completing your purchase to the time that the equipment gets dismantled and torn down for raw materials, that's essentially where our membership is. Fair enough. And, and what is the goal of the Repair Association? Oh, to make sure that we can fix our stuff. And in the very broadest possible terms, I mean our stuff, because we did buy it, we do own it, and whatever it is, we shouldn't be prohibited from fixing it. And what has happened, do you feel, over the last so many years that has created a need for this association? 
I wish we didn't need it, um, but what's happened is manufacturers have basically figured out that they can get away with um, not providing manuals, not selling parts, not making their diagnostic tools available, uh, not sharing schematic diagrams, um, and not allowing people to access the firmware that goes on their equipment, even though the firmware is already on it. So you're facing all of these hurdles when you go to fix your stuff, and they're all essentially a withholding of information you used to get. And one would say, like, when you talk about computers and stuff like that, but um, computers have worked their way into every piece of equipment that we have. Computers are more and more in fridges, in dishwashers, in your car. So when we don't have access to that, that is more and more affecting every piece of equipment that we now have. Yep, it sure sure is. Um, I did a quick count of the technology that I have in my home. Uh, just to see how much stuff I really have that um, already has a digital part in it. And I'm not a big tech user. And so I've only got like 40 things. But it's only 40. <laughs> and only 40 <laughs> which is, doesn't which seem is like a an lot only. lot worse than that if you start buying things like Alexa and, you know, this gadget and that gadget and this. Uh, I don't have any smart light bulbs, for example. So... I'm counting the major appliances that have mm-hmm. stuff in them. And the movement is towards smart homes. So this uh, movement that you're a part of uh, is going to just get larger. And the necessity for that is going to get bigger as we're more beholden to these large companies and a lower number of companies uh, day by day. It's really five or six companies that are in charge of most of the electrical equipment that we have, even components. Um, I'm not sure that that's entirely true. You may be thinking of the the Fang, the Facebook, Amazon, Google, yeah. Microsoft. No, but the um, the hardware side is is thousands of companies. Really? Yeah. Uh, and what if you can make a product and you have a chip in it, you can monopolize repair instantly with no penalty. Right now, it's just just don't do anything. You make more money by doing less. It's it's really easy, and it's going to take a very concerted effort to make that ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous to make that go away. Um, do you find that some companies are, respe- are receptive to what you're trying to do, or is it a general industry pushback that you're seeing? Well, it's a general industry push pushback, but some industries are more re- re- repair-friendly um, because of their history. Uh, the personal computer industry, where you could make your own desktop, um, remains pretty well open to repair. The Windows, Linux, the, what we call the Wintel um, product line. So that's everything that's not a um, essentially everything but an Apple. <laughs> so you can make, if it's, a, if it's a Lenovo or a Dell or an HP, those products remain open to repair, largely because they never stopped. Uh, it wasn't a conscious decision that they just grew up that way. Whereas the cell phone industry is widely hostile towards repair, even though it's just the same stuff in a different shape. Um, they just created an industry where people were prevented from understanding how much they were paying for the product because they were renting it through a carrier. Uh, and so people didn't really realize that they, they weren't actually owning this stuff. They were paying a lot of money for it, but they didn't actually own it. Now they're, now they're forking over $1,000 or something like that and they've become very sensitive they were price sensitive before but they sure are now yeah that seems to be this the big sneak these days is the fact that we are giving up 
our ownership of a lot of things in order to get a better deal at the beginning. Uh, uh, whether we even have a choice. Yeah. I saw an article recently that some brand of television um, was saying we can't produce the TVs. We can't sell them for the same price as if we allow them to go out with spyware in them. And I'm like, I never had the choice as a consumer. If I had a choice to spend $50 more for a thing that didn't spy on me, I'd like to have that choice. Absolutely. I don't. That's never been asked to any of us. And I think that's that's an incredible point. Uh, yeah, well, I, there's a lot of incredible points that are going on behind the scenes. I mean, the access that we have to control our devices is so poor um, that we can't turn off these things that are spying on us. We can't go in and, and reset the settings on the baby monitor to make sure that we're listening to our baby and somebody else isn't listening as well. Um, it's it's pretty atrocious. Um, that's not what Right to Repair is going to fix. But we are approaching a pretty significant problem all by itself, just being able to fix your stuff. There'll be, there's more work to do. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, general public knowledge of the options that people should have, I think, is lacking. Would you not agree? I totally agree. It's come as a big surprise to a lot of people that they can't fix. Uh, they, they, they can't fix their stuff. They're astonished by it. Uh, because they, were never, they never thought that it would be like this. You know, they, they, they could take a phone to Apple, and Apple says, I can't fix it. And they say, okay, well, I guess i got to buy a new one. And it's only now starting to occur to people that that might not be true. Um, and the same problem is happening with refrigerators and televisions and obviously tractors. Uh, people don't imagine that when they buy a tractor and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on some of this advanced technology, that they can't actually turn around and do what they want with it. Yeah. including resell it. There's some pretty amazing language in the John Deere end-user license agreement that says not only that you've agreed that this is now a licensed product and you have no rights to meddle with it um, or adjust it or do anything to it, but then if you go to sell it, you've got to make sure that the next buyer agrees with that contract, which is wow. a co- unbelievable wow. Everybody should say, whoa, whoa, what's happening here? You don't own this. You never did, and you can't sell it. Wow. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's in there. But, I, yeah. I, <laughs> see, I wasn't aware of that one, and that one, that one kind of well, blows my mind. Well, who reads that stuff? <laughs> Nobody, because it's impossible. It's 30 pages long, at minimum. And it's not, there's no, uh, it seems like it's minimal amount of effort to make it accessible to anybody they're completely um you know they try to say well you can read it right here and you go click the thing at the bottom but there's no real uh they don't condense the main points they don't uh help you in any way to sort of understand that there's no yeah there definitely is a a, a lack of um a, a lack of transparency when it comes to these yeah and it's a little more insidious than that because um it's written so that you are really not expected to read it. It's, got, it's loaded up with stuff, the terminology that the average person is not expected to understand. And then, just in case you do understand it, it doesn't matter anyway because you've got no negotiating power. Yeah, you don't you have a choice. You can't say, I'm going to buy this tractor uh, if you take this phrase out. And they're going to say, just forget it. <laughs> you buy it or don't buy it. Yeah. And you don't have so it, 
enough yeah. o- options in the market to really go, okay, well, I'm going to go to the other guy and he's going to sell me the tractor without that problem. And then no, because the other guy's tractor probably does the exact same thing. You got it. The, the options to get away from this business model are very, very few and far between, if at all. Uh, and nobody wants to break ranks with that because it's so enormously profitable. If you can do it, they're going to do it. Uh, and the moment, the moment one bill comes through and says you can't do this anymore, I think it falls apart really quickly. But the trick is to get that one piece of legislation in place. So it's the actual, it's the deception that's hidden in these little agreements that is where the, the link is to legislation. Um, because there are statutes in, in, in the U.S. and in Canada that talk about consumer protection and not being subjected to unfair and deceptive contracts, mm-hmm. which these are. You can see that they are tremendously deceptive, and they're harmful. Absolutely. And any contract, I think, should be negotiable. <laughs> like, th- there should be lo- some level of negotiating power. If I'm expected to sign a contract on something, yep. I should be able to negotiate it. And there's a, a zero negotiating power in 90% of these style of contracts. So what is it the type of, uh, of legislation that uh, the Repair Association is trying to help with, put forward, and advocate for? Well, we're going into states, which is where um, these contracting laws apply. Same thing with provincial law in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and insisting that no matter what the contract says, this, this end user license agreement, that the manufacturer still can't get away with not letting you fix your stuff. It can say all this other flowery language, and we don't care what that mm-hmm. is. But at the, at the end of the day, you can't give away your right to repair your stuff. And the manufacturer then has a positive responsibility to provide the stuff they used to provide, which was parts, tools, diagnostics, manuals, and firmware. Because they always provided it before. Absolutely. And it didn't hurt them to provide it. They just stopped, and nobody caught them. And what do we say when they come back and say, well, you do, they don't actually own the product. On some of these products, once again, it's basically a lease. I'm not, I don't own my phone. I'm leasing the phone, paying it off in installments through my phone bill. Well, you've got to know exactly what the contract really is. You may, in fact, be leasing it, and in that arrangement, you don't have any control. Mm-hmm. But if you're leasing it to buy it, in other words, at the end of 24 payments, you own it, that's actually an ownership. It's a, an installment purchase. An installment plan. And, and that... in under that circumstance, you would be the owner. So people who think that they, they don't own their phone because they're paying for it in parts, they actually are. They're just paying, you know, similar to a mortgage, they're paying for the ownership of that Correct. phone. Correct. Correct. Um, so they should uh, have... So the- there's more... You There's more... It, it does depend because a leasing company that, you know, owns the equipment and you turn it back to them at the end of the lease, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to tell you what you can and cannot do. Yeah. And that but would be, if you own it or you're doing an installment purchase, like when you buy a car um, and you have 60 payments and at the end of it you get the title, um, that's actually an installment purchase and you have the right to the owner. Uh, do you think that some of these organizations, some of these companies have become so dependent on the revenue that they get from these repairs and replacements and, and contracts that if there is legislative change, there's going to be a lot of loss of business? It won't really change that much because um, I, the environment that I was in for most of my career, which was the large mainframe environment, mm-hmm. even when there weren't these limitations and there was a vibrant market for third-party maintenance, it was never more than 10 to 15% of the whole market. So, yes, 
Competition is going to help enormously. It will directly lower the cost for the people that choose to use it. But not everybody's going to choose to use it, and they're still going to benefit from the option of competition because it's going to keep everybody honest. Absolutely. Um, I think there are some companies that will um, that will have some other problems in terms of how they do their revenue recognition, but it gets a little nuanced at some point. We don't really need to go into it, but nobody's going to go out of business. They're just going to have to have competition. If they're good, they'll stay in business. Uh, yeah, because for me, I think of the automotive industry, which from what I've heard from people who've worked in it uh, from the sales end, is they're making a lot of their money on the repair part. Uh, yes, they are. They're not making a, a ton of money anymore on the sale of the vehicle. The price of the vehicle has been pushed down so low that uh, even the sales reps say they're not making a ton off of that. I mean, that might be what they're trying to tell me just to sell me a car. But, uh, you know, um, so th- I think their big worry would be that if if it was easier for people to repair their own vehicles, that it would uh, it would definitely inf- affect their bottom line. Well, we've had right to repair in the U.S. Um, since 2012 mm-hmm. for cars, so uh, that hasn't that hasn't been the case. Well, that's good. Um, what is? The I mean, di- the independent mechanics. I'm sure you have a lot of them in Canada as Absolutely. well. Um, they are probably getting access to pretty much everything they need, and maybe not so favorably. Um, there's a big hole in that auto agreement um, for right to repair that doesn't, I mean, the manufacturers are still going to price gouge on the parts yeah. pretty, pretty aggressively. That's not controlled in that agreement. Um, we do have a test of fair and reasonable in the legislation we're promoting because obviously, uh, and I went through this personally with a microwave oven, um, I had a $600 microwave oven that uh, one small part went out, and long story short, they wanted $600 for the part. Yeah. Um, that is egregious. <laughs> uh, it should have been like a $10 part. It was a pretty trivial thing, but without it, it was a $600 boat anchor. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty tuned in on, on the games that manufacturers play about service parts. Yeah, and that seems to be a ever expanding excuse. Oh well, fixing it's going to be more than replacing it, but we can replace it for this amount of money. And you just go, well, no, I want to fix it so I can keep using it. Well, they control when they when they have access to all the materials and nobody else does. They then not only get to decide what the labor rate is, which is whatever they feel like, they also get to decide what the part price is. And then there's no hope. You, the consumer has no option. It's like you pay their price or you pay their price or you buy something else. Is there copyright that comes in the way of being able to have third parties create repair parts for some of these items? Well, creating repair parts would be a patent yeah. issue, Fair not, not yeah. a copyright issue. Um, and it, one of the requirements that we're going for is that manufacturers have to sell service parts. Because otherwise, uh, everybody's improvising if they can, and they're buying parts that, quote, fell off a truck, or they're not able to buy parts at all, in which case, um, you know, there's no repair. And which which industry do you feel is the biggest offender when it comes to this type of uh, action? Well, every industry has their devil or or their villain. Uh, In the cell phone industry, the big villain is Apple, although they all do the same thing. Apple is just the biggest villain. In the agricultural equipment sector, it's definitely John Deere. 
Um, they're the most aggressive, and they're the biggest name. So, yes, they're the biggest villain. Um, in forklifts, um, heister. I mean, there's you name the industry, there's a big villain. <laughs> but there, But it seems as though the big villain is usually the successful one. The one that has the most pricing power in the marketplace is usually the biggest villain. Yeah. Uh, so what is what is in the legislation that hopes to change this? What are the biggest movements that you want to make happen? Uh, we want access, like I said, we want to be able to buy OEM original parts and tools. We want to be able to buy, um, well, actually, we don't really particularly want to buy diagnostics, but if there are physical tools that are diagnostics, like oscilloscopes used to be, um, we need to be able to acquire those those software tools. We need access to the firmware so that we can restore lost firmware, and we definitely have to be able to pair the parts. Um, An example, a refrigerator example this time, friend um, had a busted thermostat in his refrigerator, called GE, ordered the part, got it in, uh, put the part in, and the part said, enter password. And he didn't have the password, didn't come up in the papers that were shipped with the part. So he called GE and they said, oh, we can't give you the password. You have to hire a service technician to what? come in and enter the password. I kid you not. And how much would that service technician cost? 75 bucks? Oh, oh probably more than that. Yeah. yeah, plus the fact the guy now has to stay home from work and wait for the service technician, which is even more out of pocket. Yeah, who is supposed to come in a window of four hours space somewhere on a day and may or may not make it. You yeah. got it. Yeah. You got it. And for what? What? Who? Who benefits from that? They're just feeding their service department, or they're they're feeding the dealerships. Yeah. Um, trying to keep their dealerships in business. But you know something? That shouldn't be our responsibility. The consumer. No. We're not investors. We didn't buy a dealership. We're not investors in the dealership business model. We're we're just a consumer. But we shouldn't be forced to do that. But, and I can't honestly believe that in the long term, this is a financially positive idea for them to create. Like, I can't believe that these types of actions actually help financially because of the perception that it creates within the customer. Um, I agree with you. I think the worst brand image that any of these companies can have is the brand image of being hostile towards their customers, which is what they're doing. Yeah, and it, and it, yeah. But I mean, once again, I am an Apple user. I have an Apple phone, uh, iPad, computer, uh, all of it, and they're probably, as you said, they're one of the worst. They, uh, you know, you can love the product and hate the policies. I'll give you that option. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to love it all, Gay. I want to love it all. I know. I know. Hey, it's um, the war. The unfortunate part is the more I get into this, the worse it really is. The more insidious it is and the more damaging it's going to be for the future. Because we're going to wind up in a society that nobody knows how to fix anything. Yeah. And it, it eventually, I mean, this is the most impractical thing in the world for people to live in rural areas, myself among them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't operate independent of the power grid and independent of the Internet, you can't work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I just had a power surge before we went into this interview. Um, yeah. Um, and and in rural areas, too, I think there's been a, a, a loss of access 
everything has to be shipped. Everything has to be shipped. It has to be five to seven days or whatever, unless you pay an exorbitant amount. One thing that I find trying to repair a motorcycle is the part I might want is $6. The um, shipping on that is 23 American. Oh, yeah. Plus, it's got to yeah. get through customs. Uh, you know, half of the parts aren't made anymore uh, because it's a vintage bicycle or a motorcycle. Uh, and it becomes a really tough thing to do. Uh, once again, falling into all of these hurdles that we just talked about, making maintaining an older uh, piece of equipment. Uh, my motorcycle's as old as I am. It's, a, it's uh, 1981. And uh, I found a lot of those struggles with trying to repair it is that definitely the manufacturer has long stopped building any of the pieces for it. Uh, the aftermarket parts, some fit, some don't. Uh, you need a, a, an ability to uh, weld. You need an ability to um, lathe and manufacture p- parts in order to even make some of a lot of the things fit. And yep. the shipping is is uh, egregiously ridiculous, especially when you put customs into it as well, because there's nothing in Canada that's going to be providing a lot of these items for me. Um, so definitely, I that was one experience that I had uh, that reminds me of, of our conversation and another thing about that experience to me and this is i think another level to this whole idea is the uh personal fulfillment of the ability to repair your own stuff oh i i find it enormously satisfying i think that there is a a human element to that that you need um, need to be able to. And that's one thing I like about working on the motorcycle is that I feel it's something that I could work on. I, I, I'm scared to even try to crack open my refrigerator. And that sounds like the craziest thing to me to say. And uh, it's just a big case. <laughs> but I have like... It's held together with a lot of screws and there's not much inside. A lot of big empty space. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying in that, yeah. you know, back in the day, it seemed as though, and I don't know if it was the time, but it seemed as though my family, my, my father could fix everything that we had on the farm. So we were essentially self-sufficient. Once we bought a piece of equipment, it could be repaired over and over again. He went to town, got whatever he needed to fix it, brought it back, mm-hmm. and we were running. It was rare that we had a time that we needed to do anything more than that. The odd time we might have to order something from the Sears catalog uh, to keep things going. But for the most part, all of that we had stayed and worked and was easy to repair. It now seems as though that planned obsolescence and a complete uh, ability to avoid the repair person has become the norm for everyone. And now we're just in this consumer uh, push to just buy something new when something breaks. Yeah, we're locked in. We are locked into that throwaway planned obsolescence model, which has no benefit at all to us as consumers. It, it has enormous benefits to the investors in the companies because they get to sell things more rapidly than they ever sold them before, but they're also making them like junk because there's no, pre, there's no, there's no priority placed on designing for quality and durability. So we're now, we're, we're hitting it on all sides. People are making stuff that's designed to not last. Yeah. They're not providing the ability to repair it, even though repair would um, at least mitigate some of those failures. I mean, they can make stuff that's total junk, and if you could repair it, you could at least keep it going. 
Uh, but you can't do that now, so now you've got to throw it away and buy, yes, another piece of junk uh, that's made even more poor, poorly than the last piece of junk. And it's, 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 a, it's a race to the bottom. It's, yeah. there's, no, there's no incentive for manufacturers to build a quality product. And odds are a good portion of your product is not made in your country. Odds are 98% of the electronics are made in Asia. Yeah. So, um, and so if you're going to be at all concerned about the Chinese having any kind of interest in, um, <laughs> in controlling what we do elsewhere, uh, you ought to really have your antenna up for that one. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's – and then so – Without the repair industry being able to be local and vibrant, there's no, there's very few parts of that product that are really pushing a lot to the local economy. In Zero. The, in the area that every you're time you buy, every time you buy a new Apple product, you are stimulating factory jobs in Asia. You're not helping. There's no local business that is supporting that product line because they can't. No. Well, you could have local businesses all over the place the way we used to. Um, we, there used to be a TV repair. Every little town, yep. every little town had a repair guy, an appliance repair guy, a TV repair guy, a, a locksmith, an auto mechanic, and a hardware store. Yeah. Um, and those those businesses are falling apart if they're not already gone. Well, I mean, a lot of those towns are gone. Uh, but if you go into a lot of, uh, if you go into a smaller community uh, up here uh, that's lower than ten thousand people, mm-hmm. the only thing that it probably has, if it's if it's less than yeah, if it's less than ten thousand people, it pro- the only thing it probably has is one drugstore, one grocery store, and one or two bars. <laughs> Sounds like my town. And a liquor liquor store. And if you go through that town, you will see the remnants of, as you said, a hardware store. You know where it used to be. You know the people that used to own it, or at least the family that used to own it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's gone. Um, You know exactly that. The repair shop that used to have, you know, the guy that you knew that you could go and you could take your TV in and they could fix it. Um, All of that has, has gone to the wayside. Um, but even on the purchasing side, normally you're going to even buy that piece of electronics that was built in China, uh, mostly in China from a a company that's headquarters is not anywhere near, uh, where you live. Absolutely. You know, so at very little point in that whole, the only person that's benefiting from the sale of that product locally is probably the person who's running the thing through the till, who's making minimum wage, uh, which is less than a living wage uh, in in uh, in the states, and from what's basically less than a living wage up here. Definitely in some sections up here, minimum wage is not a living wage in Canada. Although we're working towards fifteen dollars an hour, as I know that several places in, in the states are working towards fifteen dollars an hour as well. So it really is a dire situation that doesn't really come off on a positive note. But I think what you guys are working on is something absolutely incredible, which is holding uh, these companies accountable to at least have that secondary market be something that we can hold in our own hands. I agree. If this weren't compelling, I'd be staying home knitting and playing <laughs> with my grandkids, but I'm out doing this because I believe in it. I think it's an incredible cause. I was really excited to speak to you about it. And for that exact reason, because I think it's something, because you've already hit on a couple of things that I didn't uh, even think about when it comes to this. And I think it's something that a lot of us don't think about because we're easily swayed by two things which i think are are often abused on humanity which is convenience 
and for something new and shiny because we do like getting something new and shiny i i i'm I'm, a, I'm as caught up in this as anybody else is and convenience is always something that we're told is something that we want is convenience because it, life's just supposed to be made easier and anytime it can be that's supposed to be what we want so those two uh human wants are abused in order to uh, take away an entire side industry, which can help on our our local economies in, in every possible way. Yep, yep. Um, they're, these companies are absolutely brilliant in their marketing. Yeah. Without a doubt, brilliant. They've cracked the code as to how to get people to buy the same thing over and over and over Over and again. over again. <laughs> but, but they, um, I think their day, I think their, their days are limited, um, I see it every day because I, I get phone calls from people like you. Yeah. And, uh, and several times a week now. I mean, we're, we're, I am spending probably half my time now engaged in um, discussions with, not just with, leg- well, let, about half my time is legislators and working on the, the nuts and bolts of legislation, and the other half is trying to um, be as good an advocate for this as I can with the lots of people that are asking good questions. So how has the response been from legislatures? Legislators? Excellent. It's been really excellent. Um, probably met, let me, let me guess, a thousand legislators over the past five years in various settings. And only two of them were really just so incredibly hostile to the idea that I ceased having any, there's no way I could talk to them. <laughs> really? <laughs> So it's a really low percentage of opposition, but legislators are are vulnerable um, to, you know, all the all the nonsense that's put in front of them in in defense of monopolies, and I respect them more for when they ask good questions. Yeah. Then we just kind of drop it and say, oh well, you know, Apple doesn't want this. Well, of course, Apple doesn't no. want this. <laughs> this is this is not their idea of a great business model. But that's not <laughs> – so I think overwhelmingly legislators are very much on board. The challenge for us is the education to provide the, back, the background as to why all of these opposition comments like, oh, it's a patent thing or it's a copyright thing. All of this is just totally bogus. It takes a while. Would you say it's a, it's a, um, a bipartisan uh, support that you're getting from this? No, oh, totally nonpartisan. That's awesome. Totally nonpartisan. Um, people, it, everybody, it comes back to everybody needs to fix their stuff. Yeah. It doesn't seem to matter what your political party is because you still own stuff. Um, it's been really that simple. And in, in, some, in some locations, it's been kind of a mark of success where we've been able to get otherwise warring factions yeah. to, to, to get on the same side. Uh, it's a point of pride for us, for sure, but I think it's also a good opportunity for legislators that are otherwise in pretty combative situations to, to have something that they can work on that's not so contentious. Uh, you were recently up in Canada having uh, some conversations. Did you see a, a big difference in what's going on here in Canada and what's going on in the States when it comes to this stuff? Um, not at all. No, I mean, I was a Canadian Farm Association. Yeah. Um, it was a national meeting. Uh, the audience was incredibly attentive. Um, people in Canada are facing exactly the same problems as they're facing uh, south of the border, and it's everybody's got the same outlook on it. It just has to stop. 
Yeah, I mean, we uh, one part in the pharmacy industry that I find uh, is one that I know it's been discussed for a while is the patents on seeds. Um, but there's definitely parts in there that I didn't even think about when it came to the equipment uh, and that type of stuff when it comes to the ownership of the equipment. That's uh, incredible to me. That's something I'm even going to look even more into because I really think that's an interesting discussion for more people need to be aware of because um, the farming industry is a pretty big industry here in Alberta. It's also very big uh, to the province next to us, Saskatchewan. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's super, super interesting to me. Um, yeah, there was a couple of things that came up in the same in the same um, group of presentations that I was in. Uh, one of them was talking about the data sharing that's been going on, and I think the farm associations have done a really good job of. Um, trying to rein that in because what was happening or what probably still is happening is that you're running your tractor and it's spitting out all sorts of data about what you're mm-hmm. doing and it's spitting it up to the dealer or, yeah. or to the manufacturer um, without your permission and wow. without your compensation. And so it's now, at least within the U.S. Farm Bureau, um, the American Farm Bureau Federation, um, they have a policy and they're trying to get a some kind of like data certification process going where the benefits of the data go to the farmer and not exclusively to the manufacturer. I think that's incredible. I was listening to a, another podcast one day and the guy that they had on there had worked for Google for years and he said one thing that the public needs to understand is a lot of times with these big corporations now and not just Facebook and Google, we're not the customer, we're the cattle. Yeah. And they're taking the data and their real customer is the people who are purchasing that data, that information. We're the yeah, cattle. Yeah, the real customer is the advertiser. Yeah, we need to make sure that uh, they just make sure that we're fed enough to keep producing who they're really trying to serve and service best is these other customers. And that's frightening. It is. That's, it is. that's really It's kind of like the Matrix. Are, yeah. you, are you a fan of the Matrix movies? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure we're not in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're already kind of plugged into that. I think I think that's what people see wrong about that movie is that this is the scary future that might be. It's like, no, 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 we're already plugged into it. Yeah, we just are. Just in a different way than what you see. Um, yeah, it's kind of well, frightening. I've, I've told sense. some people that I think my next project is an internet off switch. I, I don't think everybody should be required to keep their connectivity going at all times. I think that's a huge intrusion. So Absolutely. I'd like... I'd like every product that we buy to have the internet off switch. Absolutely. I, I uh, was literally having a conversation in my office the other day about something and that product started to pop up in all my ads and they say that it's not doing that, but it, it has to be. It is. Because it I, is. Oh, these are all very sophisticated little listening devices. Yeah. The, the way that your Apple phone knows that you're asking for Siri is because it's listening all the time. I, I should have kept this my Apple phone a little further away from where I was recording this podcast because it's listening to me right now. Absolutely. It's caught it. I'm probably <laughs> a, a subversive person or something like that. They're, they're hey, labeling my account. A, a large and growing crowd of people that Tim Cook hates. <laughs> yeah. Tim Apple. Tim Apple hates. Tim Apple. Isn't <laughs> yeah. that hysterical? Oh, I, my God. I love that. Oh, it's hilarious. But Anyway, uh, Gail, we're getting near the end of um, my time with you. I, I, I usually do this thing at the end. Um, it's called Read, Watch, and Listen. And I just want to ask you uh, something that people should read, something that people should watch, and something that people should listen to. Let's Ooh. start with read. Read. Well, if you're a farmer, you should take a look at, you find it on Google. It's called the 
end user license agreement for John Deere, and well. you'll find it. Um, read it. And then you will know why we have to have this fight. Fair enough. And watch. Watch. Um, I would say watch some YouTube videos of people repairing stuff. Um, there's lots of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Just find one that it's not repairing like bricks and mortar, but find one that's repairing some kind of product that you might want to try. Yeah. Um, and it, iFixit has a, has a piece out that they did recently called I Am a Genius. And it, it's on YouTube, and they put together um, people that had never repaired anything in their life, and they sat them down in front of a camera and showed them what to do and how to do it. And, <clears throat> and their reactions are pretty amazing. So, yeah, you should take a look at that YouTube video on how to fix your refrigerator. Yeah, you'll, I should. You'll be, you'll be enormously empowered. Um, read, watch. What and was listen. The third? listen. Listen is the third. Oh, got to listen to your podcast. <laughs> wow. Thank you. I I appreciate the push for that. But is there anything else? And it can be absolutely anything. It can be music. Um, no, I'm kind of obsessed by this right now. Yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs> I don't I don't have any musical themes that really go that really go to this or artistic themes. I'm finding um, great value in watching people and listening to people fix their stuff. So yeah, I'm a little fixated. No, I think it's an incredible. Uh, I think it's an incredible journey that you're you're going on. It's an incredible um, fight to take on. I think that it's great what you're doing, and I'm really happy to be able to put this podcast out and hopefully let a few more people know about what what it is and what the right right to repair movement is. Um, if anybody wanted to read more about this, uh, the right to repair movement, where would they go? Repair.org. Well, Repair.org, yeah, I, I'm also among the other hats that I wear. I'm, I'm also the, um, the content, I'm, I'm also supposed to be updating content, so um, I'm too busy to update the content, but there's still a lot of good stuff there. <laughs> oh, there is, it's great. I, I couldn't even get through all of it. It was on there before having a conversation with you, but there definitely is a lot of great stuff on there for people to read more about this, and I think, um, I think that uh, it's a good start to getting that empowering feeling back of being able to repair your own stuff. I agree. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Gay, for your time. Thanks for this conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again soon. That would be great. Anytime.